Now dig this, Matt. Y'all know I love stationery. Y'all know I love to take notes. I love to write. I love to write on paper. I love to write notebooks. Matt, what'd you get me for Christmas this year? I got you notebooks and pens and organizers. Correct. I love it. Uh, And I find that it genuinely helps me remember things better as opposed to typing them or like putting them on a, like a text file or whatever, actually writing something down physically helps me a lot. It helps me organize my thoughts. It helps me get my work done. And ever since I got my new uh, iPad and I got the Apple pencil with it, I have been doing that on there and that's great. The only problem I've had with it, it doesn't quite feel like writing on paper, which is a feeling I like. We have the solution to that problem. That's right. Paper-like. As I mentioned at the top of the show, it's a screen protector for your iPad. It uses a proprietary technology called NanoDots. With those NanoDots, you feel the natural resistance of paper on your iPad screen. It is a paper-like feeling on your iPad. So if you're drawing, if you're taking notes, if you're using your iPad like you would a notebook... Here's the way for it to really feel natural. And Chris, I know you love that. You you have an iPad, you got a paper like, and I'm sure it's it feels just right for you. It does. It feels great to use. Also, Matt, you know I'm very particular about paper. I have yes. specific brands of notebooks that I will and will not use, and paper like feels good on the iPad. Uh they also make accessories for the pencil to make the pencil a little more comfortable to hold. They make uh, accessories to help you clean the iPad as well. They've got it all. The ability to handwrite notes in a digital form is great to begin with, but getting that extra tactile feeling that makes me happy while I do it, (laughs) that gives me that little dopamine, that little serotonin burst that I like to have, is fantastic. The latest version of the Paperlike is manufactured in Switzerland using high-quality plastic foils designed for maximum picture clarity. You're not going to lose any of the definition of your iPad screen if you put a paper-like on there. And these foils are developed exclusively for paper-like products. It also always comes in a set of two, so you have a spare. Look, we know a lot of artists listen to this show. If you're an artist and you're looking for a way to make drawing on your iPad feel a little bit better... This is how you do it. So, to pick up your Paperlike, head over to paperlike.com slash Ajax, click Buy Paperlike, and select your iPad size. From now, right now, until the end of January, Paperlike is also including their Digital Pro Planner Bundle at no extra cost for every order placed through the Paperlike store. Plus, shipping is completely free. So if you're ready to do more with your iPad, head over to paperlike.com slash Ajax, to get started. Clytus, I'm bored. What plaything can you offer me today? That's more Rocket Ajax to bring back his body. Hello everybody and welcome to War Rocket Ajax. This is the internet's most explosive comic book and pop culture podcast, and we are your hosts. My name is Chris Sims. With me, as always, the man who will not play Garfield Kart with me, Matt Wilson. Matt, how are you? 
Is there like an online multiplayer? Yes. Ugh. Ugh. I I want us to get it. I bet it lags so bad. Look, I don't. Th- okay, folks. For those of you who might not know, there is a video game called Garfield Kart. It is Mario Kart with Garfield. (laughs) And this one over here will not get it, even though it's always on sale for like $2. Garfield is also in the Nickelodeon kart racing game. Which I I think is probably better. The Nickelodeon kart game... I think is is probably a legit game. I read some stuff about how a Garfield Kart might be not just shovelware, but like spyware. <laughs> Are you saying Pause Inc. Matt would do that to loyal customers, and I would say at this point, brand ambassadors like you and I? Perhaps. I just found a, a, a an article on uninstallhelps.com <laughs> that says such malware can get into the computer with the help of Trojans and spyware. How to remove Garfield Cart step by step. <laughs> Folks, we have a great show for you today. We do. We have uh, genuinely a great show for you today. One of my favorite interviews that we've done in a long time. That's right. It's Abraham Josephine Reisman is here to talk with us about her new book, Ringmaster, which is a biography of Vincent Kennedy McMahon. So you know we've got deep conversation to get into with Josie. And it ended up being a pretty extended interview, some of which might end up uh, Patreon exclusive bonus content. But there's lots and lots of good stuff in that interview. Yes. Uh, and speaking of, Matt, I think we should get right into it with uh, with the first thing that we have to do. That's right. Our first bit of business here is thanking our newest Patreon supporters, Chris. That's right, Matt. Now, these are the people. They went all the way down to 629 Gimmick Street, and buddy, you know what's there. It's right next to... Wait, it's a... this would be across the street from Just Incredible's house? I think it's I think it is across the street from, from Just Incredible's house, yes. 629 Gimmick Street. You know what's there. What what is there, Chris? Dominic Mysterio's house. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, the joke we've been building to for two and a half months, everybody. It's Dominic Mysterio's house. And while you're if you're there, uh you can you can get on Dominic Mysterio's Wi-Fi. Uh and I mean, don't do that. Uh, use your own Wi-Fi, but whatever your whoever's Wi-Fi that you use, use your own credit card when you go to patreon.com slash Ajax, where you can kick in as little as a dollar a month to uh, help support the show and uh, help me and Matt keep uh, paying those gimmicks that keep sending the mail call bills. Chris, I don't have any new names to read. Unconscionable. Yes, we are currently at around the weed number of patrons. We are actually right now exactly at the weed number of patrons. Or I will allow it. 420. But we have to exceed that number to get to a beast number of patrons. We do want a beast. Is our next goal. We want to get to a beast. That's 666. We got to get to that number of patrons. 
So you can be the first step on that long journey. That to highway least, to hell. That's on the highway to hell. <laughs> that's what we're calling it. We're, we're starting a new a membership drive. It's the War Rocket Ajax Highway to Hell. That's trying to get us from the weed number to the devil number. Uh, so tell 246 of your friends. That's right. Every journey on the highway to hell begins with a single step. And this is this is it. This is your first one. Getting us from the weed number to the devil number. If you are one of those people who helps us get to the devil number, you get some cool stuff. You get ad-free episodes of all the shows that we do. This show weekly, Every Story Ever Specials monthly, Comics Catch-Up, Movie Fighters and Snack Situation, all of those are made possible by your support on Patreon, and you get them all ad-free as a patron. You can also get bonus content, like I mentioned we might be putting some of the interview with Josie up on Patreon, make it Patreon exclusive. That would be at that level of the Patreon. You would get to listen to that. Line-stepping privileges for our segments, including Every Story Ever and currently Thursday Night Raw. You get to step to the front of the line for those segments with your submissions. Physical rewards, I will be sending in the design for our 2023 t-shirt very soon and uh, get the ball rolling on that process for this year. Uh, All of that stuff is stuff you can get over on the Patreon. So head over there and help us out if you can. If you cannot help us out monetarily, there are other ways to help us, leaving us a five-star review on the podcasting app that you use. Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, wherever it is you get your podcasts, five stars would be helpful. Or just let your friends know about the show. Spread the word. Get the word out uh, while social media as we know it still exists. Or just tell your friends in person. With that, Chris, it's time for some checks and wrecks. What do you say? Let's do it. Chris, what do you have to check in with this week? Well, Matt, it's springtime now, apparently. According to the calendar, it is indeed springtime. Yeah, according to the calendar. You know what the calendar is? A lie? Is that what you're going to say? Yeah, that's Pope Gregory's Book of Lies, is what that is. Because, <laughs> uh, let me tell you, if it's, so, if it's so friggin' spring out there, why did I slip on the ice twice today? Why did I do a full flatback bump onto that unforgiving concrete today in late March? I don't know, bud. It's It's... I you know I I don't know the Minnesota weather, but I did live in Chicago for several years, and March into early April is I've never been more frustrated in a period of time where it's just like just get warmer. Yeah, it's supposed to be. I don't even i I don't even like dislike the cold. I like the cold. I like the snow. I don't hate shoveling the snow, but for God's sake, it's been six months. I'm ready. I'm ready for it to go, Matt. I'm ready for it to go. Yeah. It's, it's not the thing itself. It's the length of time that it's around and that you have to deal with it. Yeah. Yeah, buddy. For sure. AC is, is, has started buying like, fully summer clothes like short skirts and and is trying to evoke 
and manifest uh, warmer weather. I am just seething, and uh, my frail human body is fully pratfalling now. So that's that's what I've been up to this week. It's life, Matt. It's just life. That's life. That's what the people say. Riding high in March. Maybe there will be sunlight in May. What have you been up to, buddy? Well, Chris, as you might guess, I have been hawkishly watching the numbers on my Zoop campaign, the crowdfunding campaign for Imposter Syndicate issues one and two. And I mentioned last week that we met our goal of $6,000 in just a little over 48 hours, which is huge, uh, a huge thing. I also said to all our listeners, I know there's more than 181 of y'all, the number has gone up now to 217 supporters, but let me say, I know there's more than 217 of y'all. And again, no obligation, I'm not putting any obligation on anybody, but it would be nice to get to the stretch goal. Our first stretch goal is 8,000, and then we have another stretch goal at 10,000 with some uh, actual like pinup art being added to the book. And uh, I know y'all want that stuff. I know that that is, is, it would be cool to get a bigger book with more content in it uh, for the same price that you paid for it. So I'll just ask again, if you would be so kind as to share the link to the Zoop campaign with folks, you know, get the word out there, uh, tell, tell your buds about it. Uh, I would really like to get Imposter Syndicate to those stretch goals to uh, absolutely make sure that all the costs are covered uh, in the campaign. So just mentioning it again, doing a crowdfunding update uh, for y'all. This is going to be the thing that is forefront of my mind until it is over. Uh, So, uh, you know, that's just how that's going to be. I can also mention some of the podcasts I've been on recently. Uh, I was on the uh, WMQ&A comics podcast. I believe I retweeted a link to that. I was on Comics for the Apocalypse, which was super fun to be on, uh, talking about what comics you would take into an apocalypse. I was on the Zoop podcast, like the official Zoop podcast, uh, to talk about the book uh, not a podcast, but I got interviewed by AIPT. There's an article over there. Uh, I was on Keeping It Geekly. I'm sure there are some things I have forgotten, some podcasts I've forgotten that I've been on or that have not gone up yet. But uh, I will try to let folks know uh, when other shows uh, I'm on go up. So that is that is the crowdfunding update, Chris. Which means it's time for some recommendations. Let's do it. What do you have to recommend? Matt, I come to you today not with a recommendation. I come to you today seeking advice. Because what am I supposed to do when all these video games are like 90% off? This is... I'm so mad now that, that it took until recently for me to to get real into Steam, where they'll just give you video games, I guess. 
There's video games are so cheap on Steam. <laughs> now, admittedly, I have bought some of them that I cannot play. Uh, I bought I bought that uh, that Berserk game. That's like a, a, a Muso game that doesn't run on the old deck, but it, it it runs on other devices that I have. But why are these video games so cheap, buddy? I think you've answered your own question, which is if a if a video game is cheap enough. You can entice people to buy it, whether they actually end up playing it or not. Here's the thing, though, man. Here's the thing. I just have a wish list on Steam, and I just wait for them to be 75% off. <laughs> like, there's games that I want, and that's that's what the problem is. There's games that I want that that I will just, you know, add on there, and then it'll be like, okay, well, now it's $4. And as you know... Uh, the the philosophy that my wife and I live by is that if something is under ten dollars, it's basically free. So what am I going to do, Matt? Not get them? <laughs> I don't know. Somebody tell me which of these games I bought recently I should play next, uh, and which of these Metal Gear Solid fives is the one I need. I should play. Wait, how many Metal Gear Solid fives are there? I have the Phantom Pain and I have Ground Zeroes. Okay, those are just. Both of those together are one game. Okay, well, but they're separate in my thing, so what do I yeah. do with them? You play Ground Zeroes first, because that's the first part, and then you play the Phantom Pain, which is the bigger second part. Okay, all right. I, that I can do. Yeah. Ground Zeroes is just like a prequel, short prequel game to Phantom, the Phantom Pain. I can answer your questions about Metal Gear. Uh, that I okay. can do for you. Why am I bad at the one with the sword? Revengeance? Yeah, that's the one. That's the one I haven't played, even though that's okay. the one that's become like a wild meme in the year since it came out. That's the only one I've played so far. It is very different from all the other games. Yeah, so the other games aren't good, is what you're saying? They're just different. You've played stealth games before. You know what Metal Gear is like. <laughs> yeah, but I don't really like stealth games. I like games where that are Bayonetta. Well, if you don't like stealth games, then I don't <laughs> know how much you're going to enjoy any Metal Gear. Although Metal Gear Solid Five is a little more varied in its gameplay. So Here's a complete list of the Metal Gear games I played. Uh, Metal Gear Rising, colon, Revengeance, mm -hmm. and Super Smash Brothers. Did you never play any of the Metal Gear games for NES? You never no, played, like, Because they look really long. fucking boring, dude. I mean, they kind of are. You the hang NES, out in your cardboard boxes and don't fight people. The NES games are bad versions of the real games, which were on MSX, which never got released in the U.S., so... <laughs> Matt, what but, is your recommendation? People, no, folks, if you see a good game you like, and it's, like, $5, let me know. That's my recommendation. Because uh, one day I will have time enough at last, like Burgess Meredith. You don't. Do you? You don't remember how that episode ended? <laughs> oh, uh, no, I don't think so. <laughs> Go to the fucking store, dude. Just buy more glasses. We talked about you buying Hitman, and you should get Hitman, and that will tide you over for a good long time. Hitman. I Hitman is a superlative. Those three Hitman games are superlative games. They're so good. Uh, so 
I think you will enjoy those, despite the, them also being somewhat stealth games. Uh, my recommendation, Chris, is in in the continuing saga of Matt catches up on the Oscar nominees. Uh, I watched uh, Banshees of Inisherin on Home Box Office Maximum, which is not a sponsor but could be. And I will tell you, I went into that movie with not the highest of expectations. I liked the last movie that Martin McDonough directed with Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson uh, in Bruges. I liked that movie a lot. But I hated Three Billboards Outside of Whatever, Missouri. A movie that was like, hey, what if we sympathize with the racist cop? That movie sucks. Come at me, everybody. It doesn't understand Appalachia at all. Uh, but so, so that movie gave me some pause about Banshees of Inisherin. But because Banshees of Inisherin is set in Ireland during the Irish Civil War and is by Mark McDonough, who is Irish, uh, it's actually really good. And uh, does a bunch of really interesting things in being about a movie about just two friend a friendship ending between two guys who live on a tiny island off the coast of Ireland. And Colin Farrell is great in it, and I think Colin Farrell is one of the most underrated actors of our age. Because he can be that guy in Banshees of Inisherin, and he could be the Penguin. And, and, and Bullseye. And Bullseye. The, the, I, the line reading from 2022 that I will never forget is him being, is the Penguin saying, What are you showing me here? Oh. Best line reading of the year. Colin Farrell is great, and he's great in Banshees of Inisherin. Brenda Gleason's also great, and like everybody's great in the movie, and uh, it's it's definitely worth a watch. It's it's been a movie that I've just like been chewing on mentally for like a, over a week since I saw it. So. That is my recommendation. If if you want to give it a watch on Home Box Office Maximum, you should do it. Oh, also Carrie Condon deserves a special shout out for being great in the movie. With that, Chris, it's time to talk about some comics. What do you say? Let's do it. Superman number two is uh, the newest Dawn of DC Superman relaunch book to come out. And Chris, you talked about how much you liked the first issue mm-hmm. of this. I think this second issue is a really great continuation of that. Still Joshua Williamson writing, uh, still just absolutely stunning art by Jamal Campbell. Like home run shit. From Jamal Campbell. It's gorgeous. The whole concept of this issue being about Parasite's powers evolving and changing. Like essentially Parasite getting second and third mutations. Mm-hmm. Where he can split himself into multiple versions of himself. And then he becomes an airborne virus. Yeah, the 
the okay here's the thing on one level this felt like a very marvel comic to me mm-hmm. in that like you know there's some stuff happening and, th- and there's uh, a big emphasis on the supporting cast and I, I mean this by the way in a good way yeah big emphasis on the supporting cast you know mercy like this issue has mercy lex supergirl superboy all kinds of uh, supporting cast people jimmy uh like everybody's up in at lois it also introduces uh, a new cowboy with ghost guns. It sure does. As, as, <laughs> it introduces DC Universe's Janelle Monet, who has guns that shoot ghosts. <laughs> who doesn't really do anything, just shows up, is really cool, and then leaves. And it's like, well, I guess we'll see this new character sometime soon. Her name is, is Marilyn Moonlight. Love her. Instantly. Absolutely adore her. And... It feels very, like, Bronze Age, or, or even, like, you know, Mark Grunewald-era Marvel, right? Like, we, we talked about Grunewald and his new guys. Yeah, yeah. And it feels like like Josh Williamson's got some new guys that he wants to put in these comics, uh, with Josh Williamson and Jamal Campbell. This is definitely a new guy who just dropped. I will say, I, I love Marilyn Moonlight. I will say the one thing that Marilyn Moonlight does where I'm like, that's nonsense is when she asks Superman if he believes in ghosts. Who in the DC Universe wouldn't? There is multiple document, multiple instances of documented evidence of ghosts in yeah. the DC Universe. But I, I, but I do like the Superman thing that was like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know the fucking Spectre. <laughs> but then, like, like I said, very Marvel comic. But then it has a moment where Superman uses his uh, supervision to look into your bloodstream and sees all the little tiny parasites that are turning people into parasite zombies. And there's literally little guys, like little little versions of Rudy Jones in the bloodstream, eating your red blood cells and turning you into parasite. And that's the most DC Comics bullshit I have seen in a long time. I love that. I'll tell you what feels especially Marvel about this. The fact that there are so many overlapping storylines happening in a single issue. Yes. Because there's the parasite stuff that's happening. There's the Superman Incorporated stuff that's going on. Supercorp. Which was introduced in the first issue. Mm -hmm. There's, yes, the sudden appearance of... Marilyn Moonlight. There's Superman family stuff that's going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, where where they check in at one point. And then there's also the cabal of evil mad scientists who hate Lex Luthor, who are also like conspiring against Superman as well. They're conspiring against both Superman and Lex Luthor. Yeah, who I believe are called like the cabal of mad scientists. <laughs> like that is their official name. Well, Lex Luthor calls them his enemies. Uh, which it, it's is the great. secret order of mad scientists. Yeah, uh, that's in there. Tio Morrow is in there, uh, and and some again new guys. Doctor Doctor Farm is in there. Yes, Doctor Farm. The, so it, it runs the risk of being overstuffed, but ultimately this just feels like very eventful and sprightly 
And if Williamson can really pull it off where all of these stories converge and dovetail, it's going to be great. I, I feel like the thing that we we kept saying about Dark Crisis in our discussions that we would always preface by saying like, no, no, no we actually like this guy <laughs> was that like it never felt like it it started. Right. And this book feels like it is hitting the ground running. It's off to the races. Yeah. Yeah, for yeah. sure. And I love it. Like, like. I've always thought Parasite was a super, super interesting character villain who was never especially used well. Mm-hmm. And this is a really smart, really clever use of Parasite, I think. Like, just coming up with new shit to do with Parasite. I think that's great. So, so far, so good on the Superman series. Speaking of a new series that is off to the races, that's that's doing big things from the start, uh, the new Doctor Strange number one was fantastic, I thought. Jed McKay is still writing the book. Uh, Pasquale Ferry is doing the art, so it's beautiful. And yeah. we get some, like, early on in the book, in the issue... We get some just kind of like, okay, Doctor Strange has come back from the dead, so he's doing the job. He's doing the job of being Doctor Strange. Helping Spider-Man get his soul back. Talking, helping Luke Cage do, do mayor stuff. D- doing a favor for Black Cat. Confronting Doctor Doom about the way he talked to Clea. Taking a distress call from Daredevil. And then we get into the actual like big interdimensional conflict that is going to, I think at least be the driving force of the rest of this arc. And a lot of it is about the sort of different approaches of Steven and Clea. And I think that is a really interesting way to go about like making this a Stephen Strange book, but also making Clea a really, really key, important part of it. Because this was a Clea comic before this. Yes. So I think it's, I think it's really well done. I think it's a great introduction if it's your first issue, but it's also a great continuation of the Clea story that we had been getting. Yeah. I, I, I think you said it, Matt, like, the exchanges between Steven and Clea and Steven being like, hey, we can't just go in there and like kill this guy. And Clea being like, I can. I can very <laughs> yeah. easily do that. Yeah. Uh, is like very, like, a very fun dynamic. As is uh, the the backup story that is kind of the same story where we get some wand action with uh, Pandora Peters and Wong and... <laughs> And their newest recruit, Grant Morrison. <laughs> uh, excuse me. Uh, uh, the psycho, uh, uh, the psycho zeppelin of the freaky Doctor Z, is what we get in this one, and it's delightful. Yeah, it's it's essentially the same story told from a different perspective, but uh, but it, it's great. Like, I I love that Wand is sticking around. I the, the Jed McKay Doctor Strange 
cosmology is some of my favorite stuff in Marvel comics right now. Yes. Excellent. Excellent stuff. Yeah. One last book that we're going to talk about, Chris, that I have not had a chance to read yet, uh, is the newest issue of world's finest issue number 13. Yeah. Um, this is an interesting one because it's, you know, I feel like world's finest is in a lot of ways. It's, it's the Wade verse, right? It's, it's yeah. Mark Wade and Dan Mora uh, doing these stories that take place in the kind of undefined past where it's, it's you know, a younger Batman in his real clothes and uh, Superman and, you know, Dick Grayson's Robin and, and Barbara Gordon's Batgirl and all the fun stuff is happening. And this one involves Metamorpho. And it gets really modern comics for a minute when Superman goes into Metamorpho's origin. Because as you know, Matt, I am a big Silver Age Metamorpho guy, the Bob Haney, Ramona Fraden uh, book. Mm -hmm. It's maybe, like, it might be the best DC comic of the Silver Age, like Pound for Pound. Uh, Truly excellent stuff. And part of what I like about it is, it's really silly, but... There is a tragic aspect that Metamorpho that people like to hit, and it's weird to see Wade do a throwback uh, with Dan Mora doing like beautiful art. Everybody's wearing what they should wear. Everybody's in their bright clothes. You know, it's got Metamorpho in it, talking like Metamorpho. But also, there's a part where it's like, yeah, when Metamorpho uh, became Metamorpho, he wanted to commit suicide, but he didn't know how to kill his new body. And it's like, wow, that's wild, bud. <laughs> that's grim. And it, it felt like... The thing is, though, it's not bad. Like, I didn't dislike it. I noted it because it's a, like, really dark, you know, kind of line about one of my favorite characters. But it doesn't feel... It doesn't feel needlessly dark in a way that a lot of stuff does, you know? Like, because there is kind of that tragedy to Metamorpho, just not always to this extreme. Uh, and then also he makes, like, you know, he, he makes big cages with his hands that he turns to metal. So he does all his stuff. Well, well I think that is Wade at his best where the story is largely bright and colorful and for lack of a better way of putting it, throwback comics. But there's just this little bit of seasoning of darkness. Like when Wade goes entirely dark, that's some of Wade's worst work. I feel like, but when he can take like a largely bright, colorful superhero story and just add like little sprinklings of of dark information into them to kind of make them a little more complex, to make them a little more varied in tone, mm-hmm. I think that's when Wade is like at the top of his at the top of his game. Yeah. It continues to be really good stuff and is like, it makes me want this to have been the book that launched the new 52, you know, 
to get I mean, this version of the DC universe. I mean, it never was going to be, but I know, I know. It it it's nice to have it now. Yeah. And it feels like a lot of the DC universe, or like at least a corner of the DC universe, is following from this. The 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 weighted corner of the DC universe right now is really fun. So I got to catch up with it. Yeah, highly recommended. Really, really fun book. Also, great last page twist. Uh, great build to it. I kind of guessed what was going to happen, but I really like the way that. Who knew? Mark Wade, good at structuring a superhero comic. <laughs> uh, and Dan Mora continues to just like, I gotta find out if that dude's selling originals. I really do. Because I just, it's got him in his real clothes, Matt. I don't, I don't think I've got any art of Batman in his real clothes. There is a really incredible Jimmy Olsen page. in this. Oh, yeah, there's a beautiful Jimmy Olsen page, which I would pay good money for. Somebody who knows Dan Mora, hook your friend up. All right, Chris. That's going to do it for our comics review segment, which means it's time for us to get into our conversation with Josie Reedsman about Vince McMahon. Let's do it. Joining us for the program this week, we are very excited to welcome back a friend of the show, uh, someone who told me a a fact that will live in my head forever, which is that Todd doesn't eat. Uh, she is the author of the new book, Ringmaster, which I can give a huge recommendation for. Uh, Abraham Josephine Reisman is here. Josie, how are you? I'm so happy to be back. I, I'm a big fan of the show. I don't even really listen anymore because I kind of stopped doing podcasts during pandemic times when I stopped having a commute. Um, mm-hmm. But like uh, any any time I catch a bit of it or I say that like it's like on the AM band and I'm like driving late at <laughs> night and like it tunes in, which would be great. But uh, no, I'm a big fan. So uh, let's – yeah, let's let's dive into it. I – want to tell you i haven't i I haven't finished the book because there's an adderall shortage i started reading it uh after you sent us a uh a review copy and i had to stop after the intro and read it out loud to my wife oh thank you yeah i don't like i don't want to spoil the 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 entire book for anybody but uh ringmaster of course is a book about vincent man and Your intro, where you do the thing that you always have to do with this, I've done it, Matt, I'm sure you've written something where you've had to do this, where you have to explain what wrestling is to normies. Oh, God, it is the biggest – I've had to write so many spinoff articles, which has been great, but every spinoff article, I have to figure out some artful, different, not copying myself way to be like, okay, so the population of the world that has no idea how wrestling works – Here's the mechanics of it, I guess. Like, I don't even know what to say because I it's so hard to put myself in the mind of somebody who doesn't have any knowledge of wrestling. But of course, that's a huge part of the population. Yeah. I just love that you you, you use it to an end, which is that, you know, you, you explain everything. 
you explain that that yes, we are aware that it is a, a predetermined story uh, that is a, a fictional story told through physical action. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you explain like heel and face and everything, and then you get to the end of that introduction, and it the line I believe is this is the story of a heel. This is a story about a heel, but this yeah. is a story about a heel that I like. I I mean to use the to use the vernacular, I fucking popped. Oh, that makes me so happy. I love that so much because I was I, like, I, yeah, there's no controversy here. He's kind of a huge piece of shit. Well, but even beyond, I mean, the reason you can say that is because he's styled himself as a heel. Like, yeah. I, that's not a controversial statement because. This is the image that Vince uh, Vince McMahon wants you to have of him. Like anybody else I was writing about in this world, I'd be a little more nervous about saying something like this is the story of a heel or this is a story about a heel rather. But um, in this case, it's he wears it with a ba- as a badge of honor, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, Josie, the last time you were on the show, we were talking about True Believer, your Stan Lee book. Correct, and we talked a little bit about Vince, as I recall, yeah. at the end. Yeah, and and I think I tried to draw a comparison between the two figures then, and that whole like framing of this is a story about a heel really got me thinking about how Stan like d- did nothing to veil the fact that he really, really wanted to be liked, yes. despite doing some things that were later later could have been considered shady. Yeah, but he really placed a high value on being people's friend and hero. Yeah. yeah, he he wanted to be beloved. Correct. So I I want to ask about the opposite side of the coin with Vince. Yes. Cuz Vince has styled himself as a heel his whole life, and I think there's a sense that like he wants his whole people career. To I want. I want to hasten to say his yeah, whole career. Yeah. But actually, when he was a young boy, he was a pretty nice kid. It was wrestling that made him break bad, perhaps. Yeah, I wanna, yeah. If I can just interject in here, I just want to say that was one of the big revelations for me in this book because I have watched wrestling since I was six years old and knew nothing about the Vinnie Lupton stuff. But no, well, nobody did. Place. I mean, that was Vince's childhood. I will. I will. Spoiler one thing about this book. It's not exactly a spoiler, but for wrestling heads, for like IWC, you know, denizens, etc., the first third of this book will be the one that melts your brain the most mm-hmm. because it's going to have just a ton of stuff that you've never heard because nobody knew it or talked about it. As opposed oh, to the second two sure. thirds, which I'm very proud of, but a lot of the basic narrative, at least, even though there may be a lot of details you didn't know, the basic narrative is a lot of stuff that a wrestling head will be familiar with. But yeah, it's very gratifying to hear you say that because that's what I was going for. I wanted to open the book with just a ton of stuff that you can't get anywhere else. And it's not just about selling it. It's it's about telling the story to the fullest extent that I could. And personally, I just found the genealogy and the early life stuff completely fascinating not just as a you know untold story of Vince thing. I wanted I, – I just needed to understand the milieu in which he came up because he doesn't talk about North Carolina. He lived in North Carolina until he was about 26. You know, He went to college there even. He was born and raised there and 
all the way through graduating from college, which he took a little too long to, to finish, he um, he was a North Carolinian. And other than going back to the population centers for wrestling shows, that guy does not go back to North Carolina. Uh, he certainly does not go back to the back back roads where you can find the towns where he was born. You know, I talked to all these North Carolinians down there. I as soon as there was a vaccine and my vaccine had vested, I got on a flight to North Carolina and just drove around for about two weeks looking for people to talk to. And it was just a completely different portrait than the one Vince had painted of himself. You know, Vince had this image he had tried to foster uh, in a, and I should say only in a few interviews because he very rarely talks about that period at all. And there were like three or four interviews around the turn of the millennium where he opened up a bit. But the thing is, because he was opening up at all, people sort of took him at his word. And it turns out that his account of his youth, which was about him being a rough and tumble juvenile delinquent who was getting into fistfights with Marines and, <laughs> you know, putting laxatives in the food of a dog owned by some commandant at a uh, military school. You know, he told all these stories. He said he was the first student to get court-martialed at this military school. Well, I called the military school, and I called a bunch of his classmates. Nobody has any memory of anything like that. And same, too, with me going down to North Carolina and going to a Bojangles in Havelock, North Carolina, and meeting up with uh, a bunch of old-timers who were peers of Vince's, some of them a little older than him, and... These were the guys who actually did get in the fights with the Marines, at least so they say, and they all said Vinny was a wannabe, you know. As, as one of them put it, he was a little punk, which means something different if you're growing up in the 50s, you know. Yeah, for sure. I say, uh, the it's mention pretty- of Bojangles was what me and Matt texted each other about. <laughs> Talking about popping. I, that's what popped me. In, in honor of the Bojangles mention in the book, I went to my local Bojangles this Fantastic. very week. It's incredible. But you're right. He he. It's not even, you know, when, when Vince was an announcer, he wasn't necessarily styling himself as a heel. He, not he was, even in the least. No. He was the upstanding guy. He was the voice of reason and the voice of morality. It's very weird as a contrast. You know, the WWE owns the history of American and Canadian wrestling, you know? I mean, they own the tape archive, they have access to all the stuff, and most of the wrestling content that people consume in this country, maybe not the heads who are more into AEW, but like the average normie who watches wrestling, most of the stuff is WWE produced, even if it's not wrestling, if it's like, you know, a reality show or whatever. And... You know, it's it's this it's this weird ecosystem where you have all these sort of behind the scenes narratives getting generated, you know, not just in the ring. And like this brings me back to what I was saying before. You know, Vince gave these interviews and said, Hey, I'm opening up, and people ate it right up. And that's the essence of I hope I'm not getting too far ahead, but I gotta be the hustler and and you know, I came up with a word and I, I like to talk about it. But you know, that's a perfect example of what I term neo kayfabe. This idea where the the premise of wrestling is no longer, oh, everything's real, which used to be the old school approach to wrestling until 1989 when kayfabe died. Then after that, you end up with this weird system where the the presupposition is 
wrestling is fake. Everything you're seeing here tonight is fake. So don't worry about it. But also, did you know that these two guys behind the scenes actually really hate each other? Or, hey, did you hear that, you know, uh, one of these guys cheated on the other guy's wife? And I, I think he's, he's working stiff tonight. I think he's going to break this guy's leg. You know, that's how you get people amped up is by messing with different channels of media, giving them the illusion that they have behind-the-scenes info, and then they watch the product to try and decode it and cross-reference it with all this other st- all these other streams of information. It's very chaotic, and <laughs> people get really can really get seduced by it, you know? I talked about, like, eight different things in that. I don't even know if I answered the question, but yeah. Well, it's the past year and a half in wrestling has has really been extra chaotic and oh my and, god don't i know it yeah yeah and and we can get to that in a bit but if i let, let me try to finish drawing the comparison to stan oh yes i think that's what i lost the thread of but i i okay. keep going but i have something to say about that so go ahead okay so stan did some bad things but always wanted to be liked Correct. Vince has long styled himself as a heel, but do you ever get the sense that there's something deep down in Vince McMahon where he's still looking for that sort of approval from people or or being liked? Or do you think it's genuine that he doesn't care what people think of him? Oh, God. Of course he there's one person in my little estimation – over the course of these interviews, I've gotten a little bolder about saying this because the more I talk about it, the more pretty certain I am. There's one person Vince has always wanted to have the love of and one person that he is constantly trying to impress. And that person has been dead since 1984, and his name is Vincent James McMahon. It's his uh-huh. father. You know, The way he talks about his father is so transparently longing – you know, he talks about his dad in these terms that are – there's no word for it other than romantic or sexual. When he talks about meeting his father when he was 12 because his father had abandoned him and his brother and his mother, you know, when they met at Vince, when Vince was 12, he said in, in different interviews, the phraseology is always, uh, you know, for example, I was very attracted to my father or I fell in love with my father the moment I met him or I just – I needed that affection from my father is what he's saying. And you get this totally bizarre story uh, that, or I, I, I was able to uncover it, you know, that Vince senior, in fact, had this whole other family. He had abandoned his family, the, his biological family, and then went off and adopted his second wife's, um, a relative of his second wife um, and her kids and was basically their their adoptive father. And there was even a girl, Carolyn, who was almost exactly Vince's age, who I tracked down and talked to. And her account of Vince Sr. was, oh, he was so loving, he was so kind to us, and we lived in comfort and joy. And you hear Vince talk about Vince Sr., and it's always like, well, I loved my dad so much, but you know how the old Irish are. They never say I love you. Well, Carolyn was talking about how Vince Sr. would just walk around their beach house saying, I love you, I love you to everybody. Um, literally those words. And Vince says he never heard it until his father was on his deathbed. And it was like the last thing that was ever said from father to son. And we don't even know if that story is true, you know. 
Vince and Vince Sr. had a very complicated and difficult relationship. But to answer your question, I really think a huge motivating factor for Vince, whether he's conscious of it or not, is he wants to conquer wrestling to both impress and overthrow his father. You know, it's like a one-person edible complex. He wants to be attracted <laughs> to and opposed to his father all at once. That's so weird, because I've never heard anything that I would describe as, like, incestuous uh, about Vince, or noticed that being a weird recurring theme. Well, you haven't gotten to the part at the end where I quote somebody talking about him kissing Stephanie on the lips in the offices, but that's, you know, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, like, Matt, what were you uh, getting at with uh, Vince and Stan? Oh, I, can, I can riff on that if you're not, if, if you want me to, because I, I have a thought yeah. about that. Well, I, I, I sort of finished the thought, but Josie, go for it if you have things. Somebody made a really good point to me, a friend of mine the other day, which is Ringmaster is likely to do a little better than True Believer did for one very clear reason, which is the crowd wants Stan to be a face and they want Vince to be a heel. Mm-hmm. And any serious biography of a major figure who got to the top is going to require a fair amount of criticism and dark moments. So these days, if you're doing a critical biography, people are just going to go, oh, well, this is, you know, they're, 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 they're descri- their author's describing this person in critical terms, and so I'm supposed to be feeling angry at the person or something. And if it's a person, if it's about a person who they really like, or at least feel most comfortable with in a positive mode, then they're not going to pick up the biography. You know, they're going to go, well, that doesn't really fit with my, you know, frame of reference. And I'm not sure I want to do read that. But when you've got somebody like Vince, it's this bizarre little confluence where he basically paved the road for me to write this biography in that he has positioned himself in the public eye as a heel. He wants you to think negatively of him. He has made a lot of money off of people thinking negatively of him. So the public is kind of used to critical or at least, you know, uh, comically insulting takes on Vince from television. And I don't think my book is going to seem as aberrant. You know, even people who love Vince love to hate Vince. You know, you don't love Vince and go, well, I didn't care for those years when he was a heel. I preferred that he was a, when he was a nice guy. No one says that. You know, if you like the Vince that performs, you like the Vince that can do terrible things. And that's not the same with Stan. You know, I think my book, True Believer, that is, was a little handicapped by the fact that people feel uncomfortable with dark sides of Stan, whereas everybody wants to see the dark sides of Vince. Josie, I gotta tell you, because I I did get to the end, and I I was surprised. The, the end of the book snuck up on me. Go on, because it ends in 1999. It you mentioned it, I think, before we started. Yeah, recording. correct. It ends in 1999. I can explain myself if you like. Okay. But if you have a question, go on. I I mean, essentially. I, I just was curious about that choice because yeah yeah well it was it was not deliberate initially. I had planned to write his full life in a single volume, uh, but Vince has a lot of life to get to. 
<laughs> I'm serious. You know, Hanya Yanagihara yeah. wrote A Little Life, but that wouldn't be the title of Vince's book. It would be A Lot of Life. And he he had done and been involved in so much that when I started writing this book with the intention of covering the whole life, I literally was approaching my full word count and I hadn't gotten to WrestleMania six. Like I'm serious. Wow. I really was almost at the full contracted word count and I was in 1990 and I went, I don't know what the hell I'm going to do. So I turned to my wonderful spouse who is also a journalist and editor of many years experience S I Rosenbaum and uh, I was like, you know, a little Catterday meme going, help, you know, I just, I didn't know what to do. I was completely out of it. And she took a look and she was like, you know, we got to figure out a way to compress this and confront it. And what we eventually concluded was it made the most sense to try and tell a complete story that doesn't take up his entire life rather than trying to tell his entire life and only having so much space because of the contracted word count and ending up just showing like a little patina, like a surface level narrative of events that happened to Vince. You can do a narrative of events that happened to Vince and it'll be the length of a very, you know, robust political science textbook. And I just didn't want to bore the reader. And I also didn't want the reader to go away going, well, I learned the basic narrative, but I didn't get any analysis. I didn't get any digging. So it was a tough call because I really didn't want people to feel shortchanged. Um, but I, there just was not a way that I could tell the story in the detail I wanted and get all the way up to 2022 uh, when I was finishing it. So c'est la vie. I decided what is the story I'm trying to tell here? And I figured out that it was Mr. McMahon Begins. You know, <laughs> I need to end on the note of not just not not like Batman begins. It's not like the movie ends with him first being Batman. He's Batman for a while in it. But the end is like this is the life he's chosen. There's no going back. And that was what I wanted to convey with the end of the story, which is Vince has this moment where he's positioning himself as a face, you know, He's when I started watching wrestling in the in early 1999 or spring of 1999. That is, he was he was working as like a you know a tough businessman who wasn't evil but was just you know did what needed to be done. And the you know in I'll spoiler the ending of the narrative because it's something that already happened. I end the narrative with the greater power reveal because to my astonishment, when I was putting all the dates together, it was like three weeks after the death of Owen Hart. Mm -hmm. You know. Which really was, I, you know, that's, that's the climax of the book, is the death of Owen Hart. And then the greater power reveal is sort of Vince just saying to the world, the show will go on and I will always be the greater power. I will be the one behind everything and there's nothing you can do to stop me. And so for me, that was a compelling way to end the book and hopefully not have the reader feel shortchanged. I do hope to do a sequel at some point. But that probably won't happen until Vince is no longer with us. I did a lot of research about his life after 1999 because that was what I intended to write about as well. Um, and I hope to use that at some point, but also dig deeper. So I don't know. Maybe I'll – I hope I'll get the opportunity to do a sequel someday because there's still so much story to be told, you know? Well, I mean the the fact that you were writing in – 
2021, 2022 for a book to come out in 2023. You, you just happened to be. Yeah, it was the wildest this. coincidence. It's yeah, the, the the 2022 of it all. When I hear people talk about this book, or or you know, sort of when there was like wrestling world scuttlebutt about it, it was like, how's this going to deal with what's going on right now? And I, I think you know, is it just a happy coincidence? I guess that you you get to have a little bit of historical distance. From- yeah, I, I'm glad. Uh, you yeah. know that my editor was okay. My you know editor at my publisher. There's my my editor and spouse was very okay with it, but my wonderful editor at Simon Schuster was also okay with it. You know, having it be truncated like that. But it, it, you know, it wasn't an easy decision. You know, and I, yeah, I, 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 there's, there's. I hope that this will be a beginning rather than ending than an ending or a complete story. You know, I want this book to open up more frontiers for analysis of Vince and of pro wrestling. You know, if this if this opens up a space for more serious journalism and history about professional wrestling and its impact on the rest of the nation and the world, I will consider this a victory. You know, I don't want me to, I don't think I'm the final word. I, I really am not. I, I, when I came up with this idea to get back to your question, you know, when I came up with this in 2020, a couple of weeks before lockdowns, Vince was not really at the top of the news. You know, the most notable thing about Vince right then was that AEW was starting to kick in and it was like, well, does he face a real threat for the first time? That's not the most compelling narrative, but that was that's okay because he'd had a lot of compared compelling narratives in the past. I figured it would be sort of well, Lion in Winter, you know, here's here's this guy who's aging and who knows what the future holds. He won't be here forever. But then, holy moly, last year, all of a sudden, he's a top headline again. And I, you know, I don't think I could have predicted the specific ways that it would play out, but. Once I'd started researching, uh, by the time it happened, I was not surprised. You know, it, it was – I didn't exactly see it coming on that day, but uh, as soon as I read the first Wall Street Journal story, I was like, yeah, that adds up. I mean that was that was why I then that week published my profile of Rita Chatterton, the female referee yeah. who uh, has claimed for many years that Vince raped her in 1986. You know, I published that right away and – it's just you try and keep up with the zeitgeist, and then sometimes the zeitgeist just comes for you. And I am I am lucky, but also a little overwhelmed by the degree to which the book is now you know in that mainstream current. Josie, I don't want to be a pedant. I don't want, I don't want to be a pedant. Like, did I say oh, something wrong? What did I do? Yeah, I believe per uh, the Undertaker, the actual term is the Howard power. <laughs> <laughs> I all here's the thing. I almost called the book Higher Power because I'd misremembered that as being <laughs> the dominant one they called it by, you know, but it was just no one could get that name right. I ended up going with Greater Power in the book just because uh, I, I was already confusing the readers so much with so much information by that point. I'm like, I'm not also going to mention that even though <laughs> Greater Power was kind of the intended name, nobody ever really got it consistently correct. I just felt like that would sort of maybe take away from the th- narrative thrust that I was going for there. But yes, the Howard Power. I love that that is what 
the book builds to, because that is, in retrospect, one of my all-time favorite moments in professional wrestling. Oh, me too. I had just started watching wrestling. Incredible. Like, I was late to the party on the Attitude Era. I'd watched a little bit of wrestling when I was, like, six or seven. I don't have much memory of it. But then... Um, when I was 13, after a couple of years of watching wrestling becoming, not watching wrestling, but watching from the outside as wrestling became this huge phenomenon among my peers, I really actually hated wrestling. I didn't watch it, but I just, my bullies all loved it. And they were always like mocking the shit out of me. So I was like, well, I must hate wrestling too. But then, uh, my best friend, Brian, uh, caught some raw on TV, just flipping through channels and basically called me and was like, you've got to watch this. This is not what you think. <laughs> so I gave it a shot, and it blew my mind, and I started watching. Um, but the funny thing is, when I started, I was trying to reconstruct this while I was researching the book, but when I started, it must have been that Vince was during was doing this brief period where he was a face. And I, you know, I was mentioning it. There was this period in 99 where after, like, a long stretch where Vince had really established himself as the ultimate supervillain and sort of the fulcrum point of the whole company narratively, he did this experiment where they had the greater power storyline to push him as a face. You know, they had the undertaker come to destroy his life and, you know, threaten to rape his daughter repeatedly and all this awful stuff. And the intent was to make you sympathetic to Vince and when I started watching, Vince was just sort of this like tough but fair businessman who was being tormented by a demonic presence. So I'm watching and I'm like, I don't know anything about Vince McMahon at this point. So I'm like, okay, great. Like, I think I'd played the video game, the N64 game, and he like was a bad guy there, but I didn't understand why that was. Uh, you know, all wrestling was so new to me that it was, I was just sort of accepting it as it was. And then. After all this buildup of, like, who is the greater power, who is messing with Vince this much, I was really amped up and felt like, you know, fuck the greater power. I can't believe this greater power is doing all this awful stuff. And then I will never forget well, – I don't remember where I was, but I will never forget the image of watching the moment when the greater power was revealed on June 7th, 1999, <laughs> and it was Vince. It was Vince all along, Austin. You know, it was it was it was a tremendous moment of shock, betrayal, and anguish. Now I know from having read now accounts and reviews of that show that anyone who like really followed wrestling was like, "What the fuck was that shit? Like that was terrible. That doesn't make any sense. Like he tormented himself this whole time. Why would he do that?" But for me. The sense wasn't what mattered. It was just so chilling. And the look on his face, we all remember what that looks like. If you were watching in 99, you remember, even if you hated that storyline, you remember Vince's face and you remember it was me, Austin, it was me all along, Austin, and you remember Jim Ross going, ah, oh, son of a bitch. Yep. It's iconic. It's it's legitimately one of the best moments in professional. It doesn't make any sense, and that doesn't matter because it's wrestling. You know, that's not the point. Yeah, it, it's also I, I had never thought about until reading Ringmaster how short the period of time between 
Owen Hart's death and the reveal of the power power. Yeah. Isn't it crazy? It was, was. like three weeks. Yeah. And not and, even. It was like two and a half. It's crazy. And like, you know, I was sixteen. So to me, like the gulf between each week's Raw and Nitro was immense. Like it sure, was me too. Yeah, it was. It, it, the, the time was relative, and and felt so. It felt so much longer between episodes. I know. But now it's it's almost unimaginable for a, an accident to happen like that, and for you know, you know Vince famously confronting that reporter in the press conference, and and like dr- dressing her down and all of that. Yeah, and then just a few weeks later, he's like storyline. This horrible, horrible bad guy again. Like, yeah, you yeah. know, we talk about things, the optics of things, so much now, and it's like it wasn't even a consideration. <laughs> well, it it was and it wasn't. There was the optic. I, I always feel like, even as a biographer who spent a lot of time trying to understand Vince, there are layers to Vince that I still only sort of see the echoes of, and I think Vince is one of the most trolly individuals you could possibly imagine. I think Vince really gets off on messing with people's minds and not really both both being open about it, but not really saying, hey, I'm the kind of person who likes to mess with people's minds. He never says that phrase or talks about that concept, but I think he really enjoys that. And I really can't help but suspect that those two things were a little connected. Like, I think on some level, he really had just decided, this is who I am, and this is how the show works, and I'm in charge, and was not going to talk... For all I know, in Vince's head, when when they were making the very belated decision to make him the greater power, he was thinking... You know, well, at least now I get to show everybody that I genuinely don't care if they think I'm evil. Because there had been a week and a half of press cycle saying, look at Vince McMahon, this evil man who kept the show going after this person died. And then all of a sudden you have him saying, hey, guess what? At least on television, he's going, hey, guess what? You can say whatever you want about me. I'm fucking Satan and I'm king of this place, you know? It was insane. Like, it's so crazy to think about. I think the optics were a part of it. I think he wanted people to know what he was putting down. It's like his father. You know, his father, there's that amazing story that David Bixenspan found, you know, FOIA'd FBI files for, where Vince's dad was caught on tape by the FBI talking about intimidating Dr. Jerry Graham, the wrestler, into <laughs> lying to federal investigators about uh, a, you know this, this an investigation into the National Wrestling Alliance, and the quote on the tape is insane. He goes, "I told him, you know where your bread is buttered. Self preservation, fuck it. It's like this is how he. I think I think Vince saw his father operating in a certain way." And on some level went, okay, that works for me, and has just kept that up to increasing or sometimes decreasing degrees ever since. I think about that moment a lot, and I just I, I feel like it, I think it was the uh, the Attitude Era podcast that really cemented this idea in my head. 
Uh, just the idea that we were robbed of Vince McMahon with wizard powers. Like, it yes. should have been the Gathering of Five. Yes. Yes. He or fully had magical powers. I would have fucking loved that. And also, the thing that I find really fascinating in the Lost Futures of Wrestling is the fact that they were, you know, when they did the death of Mr. McMahon storyline, you know, yes. I even the writers from that period, the one, this was the storyline that, as for your listeners who don't remember, got completely upended because of a real death, uh, well, multiple deaths when the Chris Benoit murder-suicide happened, and they just sort of abandoned the storyline. But I talked to writers from back then, you know, this will go on the sequel, but, like, they were really planning, it, it really having serious talks about introducing Vince's brother, his real life brother, Rod McMahon, who is no longer with us. He died of COVID a couple of years ago. They were going to put Rod in the show. And as a biographer, I wish they had, I, there was so little that Rod ever did in public, but like, that was the thing was like, it's almost like the wizard powers thing in that it's just, let's just see how much, weird Vince vibes we can get in this show. You know, I mean, by 2007, when the Benoit murder-suicide happens, we'd already had the match where Vince beat God, you know? Yeah. Like, there was no... You you just kept having to go upward, and then the Benoit murder-suicide happens, and, you know, the the company kind of goes PG for a while, and that kind of precludes the worst instincts of Vince McMahon. I did not even realize how long this interview has already gone. Oh, uh, how long has it gone? 36 minutes? Is that bad? No, uh, it's just that about six minutes ago, I should have uh, kicked it over to our listeners <laughs> to see what questions they had for you. I feel like I could talk to you about this for I, I like. I feel like my whole oeuvre so far has just been written for this podcast. I mean, yeah, <laughs> basically. Like, uh, I, don't, I can't think of a single outlet that I have had uh, a more equally robust conversation with where it's the exact same <laughs> interviewers or interviewer about true believer. And then about ringmaster, you were completely knowledgeable about both of them. So there's a lot of fun, but yeah, why don't we go to reader questions? That sounds fun. Who, who do Chris and Matt care about Rob Liefeld <laughs> and, Lee, and, and Vince McMahon. That's who we want to hear about. And Todd uh, McFarlane, of course. And, and Todd, all the image guys, really, uh, Matt, uh, if the listeners do want to get on these uh, discussions that we have, uh, how exactly can they go about that? Uh, they can ask us on Twitter or Rocket Pod if they really have to, or they can join our Discord Ooh, and ask, Discord. ask a question there. You have to be invited to be a member of our Discord, but ask us for an invitation and we'll get you on. Uh, here's our first listener question from Mike Tom Nick on Twitter. Uh, Mike says, if you had to put a number on it, what percentage of Vince's life is made up of crimes? <laughs> I can't address that. That's, that's <laughs> I can get in a lot of legal trouble if I started accusing. I'm not a legal authority. Just say, just say JK after it. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, I'd say, I don't know. I feel like this is the kind of question where I'll get in trouble if I say an answer, so I'm going to pass. But it's a yeah. good question. It's a good yeah. question. You read the book. And then go to my contact form, listener, and uh, tell me what percentage you think, and then we can haggle. Yeah, th th that's that's a question for an attorney. <laughs> yeah, I'm not yeah. going to touch that one. Uh, how about this one? Uh, Zabaro the Poet. 
on Twitter asks, has wrestling ever made you cry the way a really good Spider-Man comic does? Huh. Actually, I'm trying to think. Maybe when I was a kid. I don't remember having any particular sad moments with wrestling. I had anguish, certainly, when people lost. I'm trying to think of... This is actually a great struggle of mine, trying to recreate what I actually thought of wrestling when I was watching it, because I didn't keep a diary back then. You know, I don't really remember what I thought was real, what I thought was fake. There are certain moments that when I've been rewatching, you know, for the course of research, and then sometimes when I'm just chilling out, I'm like, oh, I remember watching this. But then I'm like, what did young me even think about this? Like, I know, I know so much more now that I can kind of look at it. But there's a long way of saying, I don't think wrestling has ever made me cry like a really good Spider-Man comic. But I definitely have very vi- – the one vivid memory that came back to me recently was I was watching uh, a Raw from 99. It was the, the one where Rocky and Austin were, had to be a tag team. And I remember watching that in my like uh, in like the upstairs room where we had our TV back in my my old house as a child, and it was very funny. I was watching it and I was so excited about them teaming up that I started doing play by play. Like I muted the show and just started like calling the match and going <laughs> like. I, I was like, you can hear the crowd saying Roxton, Aki, Roxton, Aki. And <laughs> to my great horror, after about 10 minutes of me calling this match, my little sister crawls out from under the couch I was on and, and goes, are you just going to keep doing that? <laughs> <laughs> I had no idea she was there. I thought I was completely alone in the room and I had just been doing my little tryout to replace Jr. Uh, so that that's the most emotion I remember having was was getting so fired up that I just had to had to learn how to do the commentary. I'll I'll tell you the one moment that got me, and it is the one time WWE specifically ever got a Spider Man style underdog wins through perseverance and just being a really good guy story right. Daniel Bryan uh, or what? It was. Daniel Bryan at WrestleMania 30. Yeah. yeah, I was just about to say. That was an amazing moment. I, w- I wish I could have watched it live. I may have cried if I watched it live. But, like, just watching it, even as, like, a retrospect historian, whatever, it's a really remarkable piece of television, you know? Yeah. I mean, our arc of television, but that moment especially. I, I think it's the best moment of storytelling WWE as a company has ever done. Wow. Okay, I'll have to revisit it for yeah, the for the the sequel. I'll 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 call you up and I'll get your commentary. Yeah, please. <laughs> Chris, has, has wrestling ever made you cry? Yeah, Matt, you know that I I am an easy cry. Yes, you are. Mick Foley winning the title. Yeah, for the first time. Uh, sure. Daniel Bryan Danielson winning the title uh, in the main event of WrestleMania uh, was a big one. I'm sorry. I love you. That one got me. Mm, yeah. Uh, like, yeah, I will, sh- I will shed tears at the drop of a fucking hat. How about the, the, Dominic, how, how about the Dominic adoption ladder match? Did that make you cry? I mean, I think <laughs> that's great. I love it. But fucking Dominic was a heel all along. Isn't that great? I lo- That's like my favorite thing in WWE right now is that Dominic is a prick. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> Chris, I was there with you at Full Gear 
2021 when Hangman won, but I don't remember if you cried or not. I had tears in my eyes. Okay. Aww. And I can sell you with a tear in my eye. But that was the greatest night of my life. Aww. That's so sweet. Josie, here's a question from our Discord from Merriweather. Uh, do you have a favorite Vince meme or reaction gif? No. I, you know, I'm very basic. I really think the Vince leaning back in the chair and eventually being consumed with flames yeah. um, or whatever yeah. the red is supposed to signify in a meme uh, is – it's just one of the great memes. And I don't say that ironically. Like memes are unfortunately or fortunately – a major form of communication now. And it's kind of remarkable that that template, the little escalation of four Vince's has become even for people. I, I get all the time from people who I like am randomly friends with just online. And I mentioned the book, they'll be like, Oh, the guy from the meme. I'm serious. <laughs> like that for a lot of people who don't watch wrestling is their exposure to Vince McMahon is that very mainstream meme template. So I have to give a shout out to that, but I'm also, you know, every once in a while you get somebody tossing, uh, you know, a Vince in do rag gif at you that just uh, nails the emotion of the moment. I wonder what all of those people would think to learn what Vince was actually looking at. Yeah. Well, while he's sitting in that chair. What what was he looking at? It was Stacy Keebler yes. in a very short skirt dancing on a desk. Oh. Correct. It was part of that <laughs> glorious period where Mr. McMahon's main gimmick was that he was horny to a criminal and um, you know, very hopefully entertaining end, I suppose. It was just over and over again how much of a horn dog can he be? So I, you know, I'm glad something good came of that because Lord knows the storylines weren't exactly, you know, edifying. Was that when Linda was comatose? Uh, I think was that, that was Trish Stratus. That was during the Trish Stratus period. Yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah, that was around X7, the the yeah. series finale of uh, the Attitude Era, which I, I, I still think, like, the end of X7 is, for me my favorite like surprise ending of an enemy, uh, like enemies to lovers fic, you know, it's like you have Austin and McMahon trying to destroy each other for years. And then at the end you have about as close to a kiss as you can have with Austin, which is like sharing a beer and it's just beautiful. Like it doesn't really make a whole ton of sense, but again, that's wrestling for you. And it's like, well, what's the one thing that's the last taboo of the attitude era? It would be Austin and McMahon working together in evil, you know, as opposed to McMahon working with Austin because he's in a healed phase. And you can't really go anywhere in the attitude vibe after that. And Lord knows the creative really suffered by the end of 2001. But yeah, anyway, so that was a tangent just because you made me think of X7. X7 is one of the strangest and most exciting pieces of television that I've ever seen in my life. Like I every single match that night is something that you could write uh, a book about, you know? That is a show that opens with Chris Jericho and William Regal wrestling because Chris Jericho made Regal drink piss. Yes, yes. yes. correct. It's, it's arguably the best WrestleMania front to back. In it, is also, it is also a WrestleMania that could not exist, like, if you took it out of that time period. Oh, no. Out of that yeah. specific year. It, it's... 
it it makes no sense at all. But that's but what's it, beautiful about so much yeah. wrestling is it's so intended to be ephemeral and zeitgeisty that you often end up with these magnificent little cross sections of society just in the form of a pay-per-view that happened to be very plugged in to what people got riled up about back then. You know, you just have yeah, X7, you have all this stuff that in wrestling, in pop culture, just would not be relevant a year later and wouldn't have been possible a year before, you know? Uh, Definitely. Yes. Uh, here's a question from Stone Cold HCC, an account that exists only to ask questions on War Rocket Ajax. Great. Shockingly not a wrestling question from Stone Cold. Uh, hmm. Stone Cold wants to know, Ain't it time they cut the crap and changed it from Washington, D.C. to Washington, Marvel? (laughs) That's one of the funniest things I've ever heard. I love that. I don't know why that makes me laugh, but it's perfect. The only thing I'm going to miss when Twitter goes is Stone Cold HCC. Wow. Stone Cold HCC, thank you. I just want to thank you for bringing that audio tweet into my life (laughs) (laughs) one last question we have time for one last question from tailspin rage from our discord who asks what is the wildest vince story that you don't think is true but wish you could prove was true oh god i'm trying to think um wildest that i can't prove is true but i wish was true hmm i'm tempted to balk at that because I don't want to report something that hasn't happened. But yeah. I guess my the one that I would be mo- – let me put it this way. The one I am most interested in the sequel to track down the degree to which whether it's true is whether Vince really did propose to have a storyline where he impregnated Stephanie. That, <laughs> that is it's yeah. almost certainly true. It's almost certainly true, but I just want to know everything about what the response in the room was to that, you know? Like, when Vince brings that up in a booking meeting, does anybody I, – I, I don't know how I would respond to that personally. I feel like I'd be so – I would just – I don't know if I would even object. I'd be so bowled over. I mean, it's his decision and her decision, I guess, but – Well, the, the thing I don't that know. I – and I'm sure you've, you've heard this as well. The thing that I've heard is that – is that Stephanie went, absolutely not. Correct. <laughs> that was that. That is what I've heard as well. But I don't know. That's just what I've heard. Well, I, tune in to Ringmaster 2, and I will bring you the story of more more incest in the McMahon family. I, that I can, or at least uh, thematically. Let me, let me ask you this, because I feel like this is one of the biggest examples of Vince McMahon's self-mythologizing. Go on. Do you think the long recounted phone call where Ted Turner called Vince and said, Vince, I'm in the wrestling wrestling business. And Vince said, well, that's nice, Ted, but I'm in the sports entertainment business. Yeah. Do you think that phone call happened for real? Um, I don't know. I couldn't find any proof of it. I mean, Phone calls between billionaires, I guess, can get routed through places that you don't necessarily have a record of. But uh. I I highly doubt that the dialogue went exactly like that if it happened. My guess is, knowing Vince, he probably said some choicer words than, I'm in the sports entertainment business. Especially because I think, I, I know Vince makes everybody say sports entertainment, 
But I think on some level he knows he's making wrestling, especially back then. You know, he was calling it re- he was calling it sports entertainment in the little like opening graphic, but like it was still being referred to as wrestling regularly. I, I feel like it just seems too pat of a story, but I don't know what billionaires talk about on the phone. Well, Josie, before we let you go, please let all our listeners know where they can find you, how yes. they can get Ringmaster, yes. all that good stuff. Uh, please visit my websites. I have abrahamreisman.com. Um, maybe I should get abrahamjosephinereisman.com too now. It's a long URL at that point. But if you go to abrahamreisman.com, that's I before E. Although if you do EI, I have that registered as well, and it redirects because everybody gets it wrong. But uh, abrahamreisman.com is your source for all things Abraham Josephine Reisman. Uh, if you just are caring about the book, which I don't blame you, just go to ringmasterthebook.com, ringmasterthebook.com. Our guest has been Josie Reisman. Josie, it is legitimately always one of my favorite interviews uh, whenever you come by, and this has been an absolute blast. I have a big smile on my face. Thank you. This, As evidenced by the timestamp, I could talk to you about this forever. Well, I uh, hope we get to meet in person at some point. I'm, I'm coming. Where are you based right now? Well, when you were down in North Carolina, you could have come by, but I live in Minneapolis now. Matt's uh, in Asheville. Son of a bitch. I was going to say, come to, uh, I was going to ask you to come to the Greensboro Reads Literary Festival because I'm doing that, but. I mean, shit, I might. <laughs> you know, it's May 20th to 21st. Give me an is, excuse to come visit North Carolina, and I will be around. That's my wedding anniversary, so probably not. Probably not. Okay, uh, fair but, Josie, thank you so much for coming by. Thank you, everybody. Thanks once again to Josie Reisman for coming by. Uh, get Ringmaster. It's really, really good. I highly enjoyed reading it and cannot recommend it enough. Uh, and the only reason it was not my rec on the show is because we were going to do this episode. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's great. I, I, The one question I wanted to ask Josie that I didn't get to is how she managed to thread the needle between doing that introductory stuff for people who didn't know anything about wrestling and appealing to the absolute hardcores who know way too much. <laughs> and, and and she did it, I yeah, think. It, it's it was a walk at a tightrope and and she pulled it off. Yeah. Uh so definitely read it. Honestly, even if you don't love pro wrestling, probably worth picking up. Fascinating stuff in there. Yeah. Uh about people of whom you have probably heard. Uh but because it was so fun to talk to Josie, I think we're gonna go ahead and wrap up the show there. Uh but what fun we have had. Matt? Yeah, we'll be back with another guest next week. Uh, which should be another fun conversation. But until then, you can email us at our email address, which is warrocketpodcast at gmail.com. That is where you can send every story ever lists or Thursday night raw entries or ask us a listener question or let us know about something you need to let us know about. Like maybe if you want to sponsor the show, you could let us know right there at our email address. You can also ask us questions on Tumblr. We're at warrocketpodcast.tumblr.com. As I mentioned, we're on Twitter at warrocketpod. And we have a Discord that you can join. Uh, You do need an invitation to join it, but uh, invitations, if you ask us nicely for them, uh, we can get them for you. 
uh, just hit us up on one of the places I just talked about, email, Twitter, uh, Tumblr, and, and we'll, we'll, we'll send an invitation your way if you're nice. WarRocketAjax.com is our website. It has every episode of the show we've ever done, dating back to 2009. But you don't have to go back to that. You don't. You, you may think you do, but you don't. You don't, and you shouldn't. War and Rocket, I don't know why you would. <laughs> WarRocketWiki.com is the place where you can get all kinds of info about the show. Uh, the Every Story Ever list resides there, as well as... I believe there may be Thursday Night Raw there, uh, but I'm not sure whether it is or not. But there is a ton of information at War Rocket Wiki that is definitely worth. Oh, Thursday Night Raw is there, uh, so you can go check that out uh, there, among tons of other information about the show. If you want to find me and my stuff, you can go to mattdwilson.net. That's where you can find links to my other podcasts, my books, my comics, and my social medias. You can also find a link there to the Zoop crowdfunding campaign for Imposter Syndicate, which is going on right now. It ends around April 13th. So if you have not yet backed that crowdfunding campaign, uh, there is still time to do it. You should go. Do it if you can, and if you're interested, I think it's a pretty good book. Chris, people, where can people find you and your stuff? They can find all my stuff by going to the-isb.com. There's links there. There's links there. There's links there. Link is there. Wow. What about Dark Link? Huh? That was a great impression of Link I just did. Oh, my God. <laughs> Dude, that, that, was was, cr- that was me. Link was not here. That was me. <laughs> what about Dark Lake? <laughs> oh, ooh. I don't know. Is that what Dark Lake? Dark Link's Dark Link's in like Zelda Two. I don't know about Dark Link. There, there are Dark Links in a number of Zelda games. You're telling me they reuse the same ideas? Mm, yeah. Go figure. Yeah. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you again next week. Yeah, until then, folks, don't forget, Black Lives Matter. Trans rights are human rights. As are abortion rights. And drag is not a crime, and cops are not your friends. But we love you. We love you.